0: Good morning. And we'll dismiss the kids for children's church and Sunday school. And a happy Mother's Day. I'm excited to uh, unpack the important role mothers play in God's wisdom. Um, In my wisdom, I have not always adequately acknowledged the important role that that my wife plays. Um, I can think of one time, uh, with the counseling session, the counselor turns to me and he says, you know, Brian, you're... Lisa tells me that you never buy her flowers. <clears throat> and uh, I thought, and I, I looked at them and I said, you know what, I I didn't even know she sold flowers. Um. <laughs> so, a uh, little bit tough to find a segue from my bad jokes, as my wife would tell you, um, to, our, to our topic this morning. But I trust that, uh, or I... I would assume that many, like myself, um, having looked through the, and read through the book of Ecclesiastes, have struggled sometimes to see hope and see joy and see, uh, see God's wisdom portrayed there as, as much of it is about um, the, the brokenness of, of the world. And I think without proper context and understanding, our passage of Scripture today, and really much of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, can leave us somewhat cold and detached with a feeling of hopelessness. My hope today is that in examining and confronting the futility of man's wisdom, you and I will be brought face to face with the beauty and the hope of God's wisdom. That's the big idea. In examining and confronting the futility of man's wisdom, we'll be brought face to face with the beauty and hope of God's wisdom. And through that lens, let's look at our passage. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 12. And I encourage you to have God's word open in front of you as we dig into his truth. What you need to hear today is not going to come from me, but it's going to come from God's word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom, and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Dear God, thank you so much today for your word. Um, Thank you for your wisdom. We ask that you would reveal it to us today. I would pray that my words would be your words and that you would speak through me through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. In 1945, at the end of the Second World War, the United Nations was established as an international organization committed to maintaining international peace and security, developing friendly relations among nations, and promoting social progress, better living standards, and human rights. In 1949, the Western nations of the world established the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. Today, 30 member states with a combined $1 trillion in defense spending make up what is widely accepted to be the greatest military alliance ever formed in human history. In 1973, 239 banks in 15 countries created the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. We know it as SWIFT, a unified international processing and transmission system that not only enables globalized trade, but dominates the fund transfers that are the very heart of worldwide commerce. These three institutions, the UN, NATO, and SWIFT, would form some of the foundational pillars of the geopolitical and global financial landscape, upon which mankind would largely anchor themselves in achieving their vision of greatness. And in February 24th, 2022, we watched as Russia invaded Ukraine, and in that single act exposed the utter futility of man's designs. A war crimes dictator with a seat on the UN Security Council and the Human Rights Council. Russia's expulsion from the global payment system would punish them in the short term, but there would be long-term impacts of global commerce and trade that would and will severely cripple the world's ability to produce and transport the food necessary to feed people around the globe. And NATO, the greatest military alliance in human history, was powerless to act, held hostage by the threat of global nuclear war. And so the utter futility of the combined wisdom of mankind at their pinnacle is on display for everyone to see and observe in real time. 3,000 years ago, the words of Ecclesiastes were penned, and we can weigh their timeless truth against all of human history, both backward and forward to this very date today. And these words will produce as piercing a message as they would have the day after they were written. This is the absolute supernatural beauty of God's word that nothing else can compare to. If you're here today and you've struggled your whole life trying to see the uplifting beauty of this portion of God's Word, I trust you'll be rewarded with an expanded understanding of God's wisdom. If you're here today or within the sound of my voice and you very much doubt that an ancient text from a Bronze or Iron Age culture can possibly be relevant in our modern context, then buckle up. I'm confident that the Holy Spirit will show you and I God's literal, logical, and perfect wisdom contained within these verses as well as God's wisdom in the rest of the scriptures that they relate to. Let's begin. Ecclesiastes 1.12 says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Two clues here. He's the king over Israel, and he ruled in Jerusalem. How many kings have ruled over Israel? The answer is 22. That includes Saul, David, Solomon, plus all the kings from the northern divided kingdom who rule over Israel. And how many kings have ruled from Jerusalem? It's 21. That's David, Solomon, plus all the kings from the southern divided kingdom who ruled over Judah from Jerusalem. But how many kings ruled over Israel and ruled from Jerusalem? Only David and Solomon did both. And verse 1 of chapter 1 tells us the author is King David's son. So we have good reason to believe this is Solomon writing, and that has been the basis for my study in exegesis. But what else can we glean from this verse? He says he's the king of Israel, so... A question we can ask is, what instructions or wisdom did God have for the kings of Israel? As Israel entered the promised land, God provided them strict guidelines and wisdom for kings. Like everything God does, he has a reason and a purpose, and it's perfectly thought out. And even for the eventuality of Israel rejecting God as their king and asking for a human king, God laid out some rules and best practices. We could call it God's wisdom for kings. So let's start with God's wisdom. Deuteronomy 17 14 to 20, lays out God's rules for kings. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses." Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So, the rules. The king must not acquire many horses. This is so that the king would trust in God, not his own military and financial might. The king must not return to Egypt. It was important not to go running back to the safety of this culture that God had just rescued them from. The king must not have many wives. The king must not be distracted or influenced away from God's truth. And the king must write out God's laws so he can keep them. <clears throat> what an ingenious design God had for the, for the king to continually write out his law so that it's front of mind. Devotions for kings. But the subtext here is that the king is not the ultimate authority. God is. He's the king, but he's following God's law. And the king must obey God. And there's an application here for us. And that's God is God and we are not. Under the S-U-N, we think we're a big deal. But under God, we're not as big of a deal. Now Solomon asked for wisdom from God, and he was granted wisdom. 1 Kings 3, 9-14 to Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? This is Solomon. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, you have not asked for yourself Long life or riches are the life of your enemies. But you have asked for yourself, understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever before you, been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honour, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And then Solomon breaks all three of these rules. King Solomon acquires horses. First Kings ten twenty six. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew. And King Solomon acquired wives. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. 1 Kings 11 And Solomon did not follow the Lord's commands. 1 Kings 11:68 So 8 so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place to Shamash, the abomination of Moab and for Molech the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did all of his foreign and so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. we can see that God has rules for a reason. And the end of Solomon's life would mean that he would not produce the Messiah and that it would end up coming from David's line. But the application for us is that whether we understand them or not, God has a reason for every rule and law he has given us. And Solomon's life is a perfect yet tragic picture of that principle and lesson. So verses 13 and 14, now look at man's wisdom. And we find that man's wisdom is limited. Ecclesiastes 1, 13 to 14, And I applied my heart to seek and to search up by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. In verse 13 here, we are frustrated by the impossible. Solomon himself was granted wise and discerning mind from God. And in Solomon's understanding and insight he recognizes that God has given humans a terrible preoccupation. The text does not say here what that preoccupation is, but elsewhere in the book, the same Hebrew word is associated with restlessness, obsession, and people's inability to find enjoyment. Number two, we are frustrated by the unattainable. In verse 14, without God, we cannot achieve anything worthwhile. Corey did just a great job last week of introducing some of the fundamental concepts of this book, but let's do a quick refresher on heaven and Under the Sun. Hevel is a Hebrew word, it's translated most commonly as vanity or meaningless. The word hevel does not mean something has no meaning or that something is necessarily vain. It actually means Mr. Vapor, but the translators are trying to communicate this concept of something that you can't grasp or hold on to because it's gone as soon as it arrives. Ecclesiastes 11 says that for youth and the dawn of life are vanity, or hevel. In terms of youth and its vigor, it's not that they are meaningless, but it's up there, over in a moment. Everything we strive for is gone and over in a moment. Everything we stress about, everything we obsess about, everything we protect, insure, save up for, invest in, even everything we back up in the cloud. If our life is measured on an infinite time scale, which it is, it's all gone in a moment. But it's important to understand a key distinction how the author frames this tragedy by his choice of the term under the sun. This was an ancient idiom. It meant things done in the world, the experience of being human, life on planet Earth. The focus of mankind in our experience places an emphasis on the fact that life here on Earth is often lived apart from God, only recognizing and acknowledging the material world. In other words, it's fair to say that this idiom under the sun can be understood to mean life lived apart from God. Listen to these verses with that definition inserted in place of the idiom. Ecclesiastes one three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils in a life lived apart from God? One nine. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new in a life lived apart from God. Two seventeen. So I hated life because what is done in a life lived apart from God was grievous to me, for all is vanity and the striving after the wind. moreover, I saw in a life lived apart from God that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. There is an evil that I have seen in a life lived apart from God, and it lies heavy on mankind. 9.11, again, I saw that in a life lived apart from God, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise. I hope that exercise is helpful in understanding how an idiom from that culture and that time helps us understand the meanings of these verses. But here's where we turn the corner and catch our first glimpse of our hope in God. It's not that everything we do is meaningless or vanity, but it's the fact that doing things apart from God is meaningless or vanity. Just prior in verses 13 is the first time that God is mentioned in this book. And understanding that the author is making a distinction about a life lived apart from God is a not-so-subtle hint that we should look to live life under the influence of a sovereign God, who has created and designed all things. And now in verse 15, the author is quoting a proverb that exists in extra-biblical writings. It was a saying common in that day. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. No matter how the thinker ponders, he cannot straighten out life's anomalies. Nor can he reduce all he sees to a nice, neat system. Thus he reiterates the age-old problem of the wise men of the ancient Near East, Awareness of finitude and inability to discover unaided the truth about life. Frustration and perplexity surround the philosopher. His wisdom may help in some things, but it cannot solve the fundamental problem of life. The verb used here is WT. I won't pronounce it that well, so I'll just say the, the letters. And it means to make crooked, it means to bend, falsify, or suppress. To get a sense of why and how the author is using this proverb, let's take a look at at where else the author uses this phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. The next time it shows up is in chapter 7. In 7.13, the author says, Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Without getting lost in the minutiae of the language, including its historical and extra-biblical context, I will summarize by stating that this verb and this phrase speak not just of the brokenness of the world, but at a deep level, these words of the author encompass and contemplate the root and the source of that brokenness, including God's sovereignty in the face of the fall. And I will submit that this points us to the fall in Genesis and the very foundations of the order that God established in the face of his fallen creation. The proverb accuses those that are crooked or lacking But again, there remains in the background the underlying fact that things should be straight. They could be straight. The fundamental problem with life under the sun is the curse in Genesis 3, 14 and 19. Turn with me there. There are a variety of themes here that I want us to have in the back of our minds as we move through the next point in the sermon. Listen closely. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But in spite of the fall, in God's wisdom, he has provided a nice, neat system, and he has solved the fundamental problems of life. So let's unpack this. God's wisdom is sovereign and perfect. He's provided a nice neat system through the divine institutions and he has solved the fundamental problem of sin with his covenants which culminate with his death on the cross. Let's take some time to understand God's wisdom and let's start with the divine institutions. By a show of hands, how many can name the five divine institutions? We know hockey stats, we know stock prices, and all sorts of trivia. I'd encourage you to know these fundamental aspects of God's wisdom as they are infused in our lives. They become anchors around which we can establish habits of Christ-centered behavior. The first divine institution is responsible dominion. It's found in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. God's wisdom here, is to rule over creation responsibly. This means we're tasked with ruling over creation um, and using responsible stewardship. It involves work, and work is good. It involves the the picture of a big boss and a little boss. God is the big boss and we are the little boss with a responsibility to steward God's creation. And the outcomes of this are that we acknowledge that we live under God, we prioritize people made in God's image, and we understand that this is a temporary place and that the material physical world is not all there is. The second one is marriage. Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God's wisdom here is that men and women are designed for an intimate marriage relationship. Men and women are both made in the image of God, equal in God's sight, and they are created uniquely. Together only they can create children. Men have been designed to protect and provide. Women have been designed with a maternal instinct to nurture and care. In God's design, men and women are to work as a team to care for his creation and raise children. And a Mother's Day, it's highly appropriate to highlight the role of the mother. Proverbs thirty-one twenty-six to 28, She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. God has a beautiful and special purpose for the marriage relationship, whose value is undeniable by any measurable outcome, from both a biblical and a secular perspective. And this brings us to the third divine institution, family. Genesis one twenty eight, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's wisdom here is that the family is the basic unit of society. Again, something that is borne out by every data point we can collect. The family is the fundamental building block of a healthy society and the training ground for children. It's the vehicle for passing on God's wisdom to future generations. It's the mechanism for understanding who God is and being trained to live in obedience to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, as God is sending Israel into the promised land, he gives them a blueprint for success as they move in to take the land. His opening here has nothing to do with military, politics, government, monetary or fiscal policies, trade or military alliances, or any of the other things that we would logically expect as a key part of the plan to effectively dominate and rule this new territory. Instead, after giving them the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, his guidance is about raising children. Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 9, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. There is purpose and design around your personal responsibility as members of creation and there is perfection around the design for marriages and families. And so we can easily see how beautiful is God's wisdom in these first three divine institutions which build upon each other and we can see how perfectly they fit and work together when we're living in obedience to him. And while the first three divine institutions deal with personal relationships, the final two deal with the larger society. Civil government. This is God's idea. Genesis 9, 5-6. to 6 and for your lifeblood i will require reckoning and from every beast i will require it and from man from his fellow man i will require reckoning for the life of man whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for god has made man in his own image in genesis 6:8 god reveals his wisdom around dealing with sin which is essentially to wipe it out by destroying the earth and almost everything in it through a global flood After the flood, this same approach to dealing with evil is mirrored in God's granting mankind the authority to take away a killer's life. By enacting capital punishment, God was, for the first time, giving man the ability to create civil government. God's wisdom here? Civil government to punish and limit the spread of evil. It was God's wisdom that we should order and control human society through such an institution as civil government. And civil government would restrain and limit man's evil heart. As God directs Noah and his family to once again fill the earth, he not only provides guidance for civil government, but finally, in Genesis 10, he establishes the nations. Number five, tribal diversity. Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. God's wisdom here is to prevent mankind from conspiring together and plotting against God. Before the flood that the bell, all of mankind had come together in defiance of God. And in God's wisdom, he scatters mankind to slow the spread of evil. By dividing people into nations and tribes, God took the power away from this one tyrant and shared it among the other nations. In other words, God created a balance of power among people. This would prevent any fame and power-hungry madman from getting supreme power, ruling the world and driving it even faster into anti-God rebellion and mass destruction. In a sense... So in summary, stepping back and looking at these divine institutions as a whole, we can see another aspect of God's wisdom in the fact that the first three institutions of responsible dominion, marriage, and family, are meant to build society, while it's four and five, civil government and tribal diversity, are meant to restrain society. These represent five of the foundational elements of God's wisdom, and it's important for us to understand that they are, what they are, and to recognize the truth and wisdom that they hold for us. And so, While in verse 15, the author provides an opening to understanding and acknowledging God's wisdom, in verses 16 and 17, he reaffirms the futility of man's wisdom and the fact that it leads nowhere. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. Man's wisdom leads nowhere. We've just seen the beauty of God's overarching wisdom that underpins all of our life. Solomon, the author, has had the opportunity to explore virtually everything on the spectrum of knowledge and foolishness. And he confirms that in a life lived apart from God, everything leads to nothing. And to make this realization more practical and tangible, let's revisit the divine institutions and contrast God's wisdom with man's wisdom. Number one, responsible dominion. Again, God's wisdom is rule over creation responsibly. Man's wisdom says serve creation. That we are on the same level as the rest of creation, that we should be servants to Mother Nature. The outcomes of this are that we don't acknowledge the sovereign creator. We don't value people, and we don't have a hope beyond the physical world. A physical world that will inevitably perish. Deny the very first institution, and you have no basis for morality, for the value of human life. I'll make it simple. You have no basis for anything. Number two, marriage. God's wisdom here is husbands and wives are partners that are just right. Man's wisdom says marriage is an irrelevant human construct. And God's design for the gender roles is a figment of our imagination. You know, when trying to accurately and fairly describe man's view on this topic with the backdrop of God's wisdom, it truly is impossible to propose a coherent argument for man's point of view. And so it should come as no surprise that our world is hell-bent on denying what is so obviously true because this construct is not just an academic and scientific view of the world, and it is certainly all of that, but it is foundational to God's wisdom. And so from Satan's perspective, it has to be rejected no matter what the cost. Without strong marriage relationships, we live in a world where people don't have the partner they need to face the challenges of life here on Earth to provide accountability, support, and love. Family. God's wisdom says family is the basic unit of society. Man's wisdom says families don't actually matter. Have a family, don't have a family, it doesn't matter. Children don't need two parents, specifically a mother and a father, and if children have parents, they don't need to obey them. These children will grow up without being trained the way they should, ill-equipped to love their spouse, their children, with little to no chance of ruling creation responsibly. Civil government. Man, God's wisdom is that civil government is to punish evil. Man's wisdom says that civil government can take the place of God, ignoring evil and in many cases even promoting it. I suspect we're all very much aware of the way in which man has grossly distorted God's design for civil government. And it's not hard to draw a straight line from man's wisdom for civil government to failure. And finally, tribal diversity. God's wisdom, again, was to prevent mankind from conspiring against God. Man's wisdom is to unite, to reject and replace God with themselves. Man's wisdom is to attempt exactly what God is seeking to prevent. It's important to note that God very specifically didn't separate man by race. Racism is an invention of our sinful wisdom. Listen to how God divides the nations in Genesis 10, 2-31. The sons of Japheth, from these the coastland peoples, spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. God didn't separate by race. But all of man's efforts in the realm of international relations, be it wars or cooperative efforts, are only a continued downward spiral of death and destruction, spreading their wickedness like a cancer from one nation to another. So let's take a stock of Relanded. The author has clearly argued that man's wisdom is futile. He's done so against the subtle backdrop of the sovereign God. In turn, we ourselves have taken the time to see all of this in the context of God's wisdom. And we've contrasted this with the depravity of man's wisdom. And now we come to the second proverb the, the author is quoting in this passage. The first being in verse 15. Ecclesiastes 118 says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I'd like to quote a paraphrase Dr. Seale in describing the use of this proverb by the author. It was indeed a common assumption in the wisdom literature of the ancient Near East that pain and trouble would lead to wisdom. Indeed, in hieroglyphic Egyptian, the verb SB3, to instruct or teach, is regularly written with a man striking with a stick. The wisdom tradition was adamant that one must not spare the rod and spoil the child. The author, however, does not use the saying in the expected way. Pain commonly was advocated by wisdom teachers as a necessary means to an end. And in the author's usage of the proverb, however, pain and vexation are the very results of wisdom. Not just a means to an end. They are precisely what one gets when one has too much wisdom. The more one knows, the more painful life can be. It's hard to know exactly what the author was intending by placing this bit of poetry here, but let's anchor ourselves on what we do know. Number one, we know the author is laying out a clear principle around the fact that pain and suffering are the singular natural outcomes of life under the sun. And number two... God has clearly and plainly laid out his plan of redemption for his fallen world through a series of covenants, interestingly and certainly not coincidentally, all of which involve pain and bloodshed. With these two points in view, I will submit to you that our last point today and the ultimate point of verse 18 is that surrendering to God's wisdom brings life through God's redemptive work in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God's wisdom around covenants. In addition to the divine institutions, God also provided a broader, deeper wisdom for mankind through his covenants. While the divine institutions speak to and inform our life under the sun, S-U-N, God's covenant promises to redeem our life through God's Son. These covenants are the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. And don't worry, we're not going to go through all five. The wisdom of God's covenants is infinite, but let's highlight just a a couple aspects of these covenants. Number one, covenants communicate his desire to be in a relationship with us. God is choosing to enter into a partnership or relationship with us, his creation. He's coming down alongside us and join us in our life under the sun. And it borrows from the wisdom God has laid out in the divine institution of marriage. Number two, covenants clearly establish the consequence of sin. The covenants clearly communicated for all mankind to understand God's standard of righteousness and the consequences of our sin. God knew that in spite of his best efforts and all of his wisdom in the divine institutions, evil would not be restrained indefinitely. And number three, covenants provide the necessary pretext for his redemptive work on the cross. Man ignoring God's wisdom and following his own wisdom would ultimately require the shedding of blood. The covenants and the sacrifices that, that the sacrifices point to the final sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make on the cross. Through this series of covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, through a purposeful system of regular sacrifices and rituals, God massively drives towards a new covenant written in his own blood. Jeremiah 31, 31 31-34 contains one of the most foundational descriptions of the new covenant. Listen closely, and you will hear many of the broad themes of God's wisdom echoing in this promise. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying... You should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. About 600 years later, Jesus would go to the cross. John 18 describes Jesus' trial before Pilate. And to set the scene, at this point in history, the world had entered into what's referred to as Pax Romana. Up until that point in history, an unparalleled period of sustained peace for more than 200 years had been established by the Roman Empire, and they dominated the known world in every way, shape, and form. Rome embodied the pinnacle of human achievement and wisdom, and Pilate represented the power of the Roman Empire. The god of the universe was here among those living under the sun. And he stepped into the courtroom in the ultimate showdown of man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. In John 18, 33b to 38, Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And standing in the very presence of truth itself, Pilate said to him, What is truth? And then Jesus would walk to Golgotha. And the son would hang on a cross and experience the entire weight of the futility and wickedness of man's wisdom. And he would feel the wrath of his father. And then he would die. And he would seal the new covenant with his blood. As Josh comes to lead us in the closing song, Each one of us today comes to the cross holding on to our wisdom. Holding on to man's wisdom. And it leads nowhere. For some of you, you've never accepted God's wisdom of Christ's death on the cross. And today you need to surrender your life to him and his wisdom. And enter into a personal relationship with him. For others of us, who have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we too come to the cross holding on to our wisdom. Facing some challenge, struggle, addiction, or obstacle, we're holding on to our wisdom, but we need to surrender to God's wisdom. Let today be the day that you make a commitment to fully surrender to God's wisdom. I'd like to point out one more part of God's wisdom. In the Old Testament, God instructed the Hebrews to erect monuments of stones as a physical reminder of his work in their lives. These monuments would be markers for the things that God had done for them that they would see over and over again as a reminder. And most importantly, as a physical monument. During this last song, if you feel led, I encourage you to stand. Use this as an opportunity to make a physical declaration and a personal reminder Your standing stone of your commitment to surrender either yourself or something in your life to God's wisdom.